And so we say, but there's the thumb that says we really are. And I'm just going to check and uh, make sure that everything is reasonably normal. And there's a very good waveform, so even though the alarm goes off because I'm much higher heart rate than I used to be. September the 8th. Oh, I first, before I even do that, I have to say hi, Aubrey and Caleb and Cody, because they wanted me to say hi today. They're down in Oklahoma uh, with their parents, and so uh, they'll be back in a couple of weeks. No, I'm kidding. They'll stay there for, I think, six or seven years. But hi, Aubrey, and hi, Caleb, and hi, Cody. Cody will not uh, yell, hi, Grandpa. Grandma did not want to stand up here with me, Aubrey, because she doesn't like cameras. That's just how it is. Okay, September the 8th, lecture discussion number 74 on the book of Joel. And we are back. Hopefully a tiny bit of normalcy has accompanied uh, our uh, return here. As every, everyone is aware, uh, Cliffside is barely normal at full operational capacity. Uh, thus, uh, uh, just if I can get any fraction of normalcy, normalcy, that's the best that I can hope for. And I think I've got some of that. I, I kind of set it in, out of order. I avoided the emergency room now at Providence Hospital for 16 days. 16 days ago, I went in for ectopic uh, by Jiminy. I had I had beats that were out of synchrony. Anyway, they were they were ventricle based and not atrial based, which uh, means that my catheter ablation is still holding, and that's good. But I've not been in the emergency room at Providence Hospital now for 16 days, and that's a new world record for me. Uh, I'm expecting a certificate and a prize of some kind should arrive tomorrow. I'm hoping balloons, publishers, clearinghouse, marching band, any, any and all of the above is my hope. I should say that I'm not by design or by intent disassociating myself from the Providence Hospital emergency room staff. They probably miss me. I have many new friends there. I know their children and their pets, and their hobbies. I've been a regular customer, it's, but I'm hoping that I don't see them again. It's not personal, but if possible, I'd rather just correspond by letter, phone, timeface, Pony Express, smoke. I'll take anything but visiting that place again. But uh, with that said, I am cognizant of the reality that is my diagnosis, the statistics on recurrence, uh, are such that uh, 40% of people who have catheter ablations for AFib go into recurrence within the 90-day period that immediately is subsequent. That's a redundancy, but never mind. So I know that I'm in the uh, likelihood of the 60%. I'm hoping I am, but I, the likelihood that I'm in the 40% is obviously uh, on the table. And again, this particular progressive condition is uh, cannot be cured. It is uh, the surgery I had is curative. Um, but um, anyway, we're just going to move along. I know there are people that are concerned for me and I appreciate it so much. I've got some incredible letters. Susan, uh, I can't use your last name, Susan, but your letter was, was uh, beautiful and 
moving and I don't even know what to say, except that I'm writing you back just ever so slowly. I do everything ever so slowly now. <clears throat> okay, I am for today resisting the brain-heart communicative pathways as much as I would like to completely deviate. Obviously, I'm quite interested in the subject now. The interconnectivity between the heart and the brain is beyond amazing. I don't even know how to describe it. The implications are astonishing. It's evidence of intelligent agency. You cannot look at the, how the brain and the heart communicate and how the brain and the heart are structured and come away with any other view that, that, that this is irreducible complexity displayed. Christ himself in Revelation 2.23 Oops. Revelation 2.23 uh, places the heart and the mind side by side. Jesus described the heart as, uh, and the mind. He said, I am the one that searches the heart and the mind at the same time. Which is very interesting to me, and it always has been interesting to me. And Jesus described the heart as something that can be hardened, Mark 8, uh, 17 and Mark 10, 5. For out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts, he says in Matthew 15, 19. This is the one who designed it. Out of the heart proceed evil thoughts. Luke 6, 45, a good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. Jeremiah 17, 9 through 10, The heart is deceitful above all and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And that language right there fascinated me. Who can know it? Because I know where else who can know it is said. I, the Lord, search the heart, I test the mind. That is a, he repeats that at 2.23 Revelation. Obviously, Christ is referring, is connecting Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10 to Revelation 2.23. He is the one who searches the mind and the heart, or the heart and the mind. At Luke 18, 9 through 14, there's this incredible, there's the Pharisee, there's the church professional, if you will. Standing in front of the congregation uh, on the, that gathers on the sidewalks, because the Pharisees would always gather on the sidewalks and they would pontificate. And he thought that his sin could not be detected. And so he continued his act. But his sin could be detected because standing there, it's a parable I know. But nonetheless, uh, I always, when I read this parable, I go, is he, does he have somebody in mind is there somebody listening to this parable that has actually done either or both of these things? I have a tax collector that says, have mercy on me, a sinner. I have a Pharisee who says, I'm not like the tax collector and you cannot detect my sin. And there is Christ who searches the mind and the heart. There's no hidden sin. Though uh, there are many who think otherwise.
Most Bible scholars have concluded that God, Jesus God, it's all one word, creator of the heart and the brain, the giver of the living soul. Most Bible scholars, when they hear Christ talk about the heart, they think it's a metaphor. And I do not believe that's the case. I think he says what he means because he knows what he says, being omniscient God. I will concede that that may be a part of what he means. But he is the designer of the heart and the brain. And he obviously knows that we do not know about the heart and the brain that he designed. And naturally, again, to repeat, I've become far more interested in this subject lately since June the 4th. It's heart rate variability is what interested me in this. And I brought this up briefly in August, lecture number 73, the last time we were here. I think I did it, maybe, because I brought it up without having any written record of it. Today I have written records so I can go back and see what I actually said so I don't keep repeating myself. But I think I brought it up. I hope I did. Maybe I did. Anyway, the cardiological sciences have long assumed a hierarchic relationship between the mind, brain, and the heart. And that's with the brain being in superiority and authority, the heart being subordinate. That's the order. Mind, brain, and heart. They've long assumed this hierarchy. And the, uh, but, uh, not so fast. Priscilla. You see, in the 1960s, and guess who spent a lot of time reading about these things lately? In the 1960s, the Lacy's come to mind immediately. Fantastic scientific breakthroughs were made with regard. And the 1970s, mostly the 1970s. It was discovered that the mind, brain, and the heart were far more complex, interwoven than previously, previously concluded. Heart-brain communication... Everything that had been established was uh, had to be reconsidered because the heart, it turns out, communicates with the brain in four ways that current scientists have now observed. Neurologically, that's the nervous system. Biochemically, which is a hormonal secretion. Biophysically, this is the one that interests me because that is a pressure structure, if you will. It's pressure and pulse. Mostly, you would assume blood, but it pulses. Anything that pulses takes you to who? That's right, Max Planck. Okay, maybe you don't go to Max Planck, but I do. Because Max Planck figured out quantum theory, which is based on the fact that black body radiation and ultraviolet catastrophe could be solved by pulsing and not constancy. So... That got my attention, that there's a communication between the brain and the heart that has a similarity. And what does it say, I am? Oh, they are, now they are watching. So, okay, I have said this before. I'm glad. Not to, hi, Aubrey. Hi, Caleb. Hi, Cody. You're supposed to say, hi, Grandpa, as loud as you can. Annoy your mother. <laughs> Okay, that's cool. That is the one thing that me and Grandma miss the most is these little kids coming up and screaming, Hi, Grandpa. Hi, Grandma. Give us 
gummy, gummy food. Sugar. Which I went and got a shovel and I would give them gummies. I bought them by the boxes. It's fantastic. Anyway. The great discovery of the 19th... Oh, I didn't finish that. So biophysically is the pressure waves or the pulsing that is there. And that, again, that just fascinates me that the communicative structure of the heart and the brain would be very, very similar. Well, that wouldn't surprise me, would it? To the micro... uh, to the quantum level. And my personal favorite, the fourth one of those four, is electromagnetically. And that, that obviously is uh, the field that I have the most education in by far. Consider for a second the electromagnetic structures in the earth. And then here we, each and every one of us, have an electromagnetic structure uh, in the, between the brain and the heart and other places as well. To rephrase this a bit, the nervous system, the hormonal, the neurotransmission, the pressure, the pulse waves, and the electromagnetic fields, those are four ways that the heart and the brain communicate. And the, the great discovery of the 1970s was that, it's, that the heart also has its own neurotransmitters, just as the brain does. The heart actually manufactures and produces its own neurotransmitters. Its neurotransmitters have been shown to be involved in cognition. And the concentration level of the heart produced manufactured neurotransmitters, excuse me, blah, 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 blah. Let's drink stuff that is not Diet Coke. The concentration level of the heart produced, the heart produced, I'm sorry, the heart manufactured neurotransmitters are in the same range as the brain produced neurotransmitters. Think about what I'm trying to say here. The atria of the heart produce and secrete a peptide that influences behavior. And if that's not enough, it turns out the heart sends more information to the brain than the brain sends to the heart. And the heart controls the brain. In, with some aspects. So the hierarchy that has all along been con- considered correct is not correct at all. The heart possesses its own logic. And the logic has independence. The heart behaves, it is said now, as if it thinks on its own. And Jesus Christ said, Everything he said about the heart is absolutely, perfectly consistent with that. How did Jesus Christ know this, duh? Post-flood, this was complete. Notice how I said that. Post-flood, this was information completely unknown prior to the 1970s and 1980s. And obviously, it's completely unknown where... Totally, completely oblivious everywhere. That's right, the church. We have all that information and we had it for 2,000 years and we had no idea and we still have no idea. So notice how I degenerate into a rant on the ignorance of the church today. The church should know this. That's my opinion. 
especially because it's a key verse, Revelation 2.23, and that in the study of Joel, Revelation 2.23 is extraordinary. And so I intend to take this subject on, not today, everyone yell yay, it is very complicated. You will have to understand the sympathetic and the parasympathetic elements of the brain to the heart, the afferents. The brain uh, receives information. That's afferents and efferents. Those are the pathways. The brain, I have this ascension and descension of communication between the heart and the brain. Again, that's uh, John 3. That's Proverbs 30. That's Genesis 28. It's necessary to study the intrinsic cardiac nervous system, the extrinsic nervous system, the subcortical, the spinal column and the vagus nerve, the medulla, the hypothalamus, the thalamus, the amygdala, barely say that one, and the cerebral cortex. What do we call this? We, ninth grade biology. Everyone draws a heart and brain diagram. I've made you draw diagrams before. It went over really badly. Um, so invite your friends and, and neighbors. I'm actually going to do it. I'm going to stand up here and draw a heart diagram. I'm going to hand out paper. And you're going to draw your own. Because this subject, I believe, has such, such far-reaching implications. Well, you need, you don't need, but the church should know the systolic and the diastolic, diastolic function. That's the emptying and the filling, how the blood moves through the heart and through the pulmonary and through the, uh, the systemic circulatory system. So, if you wish for new friends and neighbors, invite them to that. We're not going to do it today. Today we're going to do Ecclesiastes 12. Because Ecclesiastes 12, Bill came today, Bill the Fast. I should say to the audience in the vast internet audience out there that Bill the Cow and Crazy Becky are trying to sneak into Kentucky as I speak. If you catch them, send them back. They're going to be really obvious. We're going to do... Ecclesiastes, oh, I can't even spell it. Can you believe that? T-E-S, T-E-S, thank you. Ecclesiastes, that's right. Well, Bill the, Bill the Fast didn't talk to me today. We haven't talked for a while about you doing the elder presentation and he got up and duplicated page 6 through 12 of my lecture. It's fantastic. Mine's a little bit different, but essentially that's what he did. So, follow along. I don't ask you to do that, but this is one of these subjects. What was the name of that book that you uh, that you said, Bill? After the Last Heartbeat, right? Is that what it was? Okay, here we go. Guess what the topic of Ecclesiastes 12 is? After the last heartbeat. So read along or try to, try to assimilate it. It's very, very good if you will read it while I read it because it has more impact on you, I believe, than just listening to me and falling asleep.
Remember now. Oh, we can stop right there. How many words did we get into before we have to launch into 45 minutes to define that word? Remember now your creator in the days of your youth, before the difficult days. It actually says evil days. But difficult is fine. That's what he meant, if you want to think of it that way. Remember now your creator in the days of your youth before the difficult days come, the evil days come, and the years draw near when you say, I have no pleasure in them, while the sun and the light, the moon and the stars are not darkened, and the clouds do not return after the rain. In the days when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men bow down, when the grinders cease because they are few and those that look through the windows grow dim, when the doors are shut in the streets and the sound of the grinding is low, when one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of music are brought low. Also, they are afraid of height and the terrors in the way. When the almond trees blossom and the grasshopper is a burden and the desire fails, for man goes to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets. Remember your Creator before the silver cord is loosed. Two obvious questions now. Remember your creator before the silver cord is removed is another is probably more literal, but I like loosed or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the well. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was and the spirit will return to God who gave it vanity of vanity, says the preacher. All is vanity. Okay, right off the bat, Ezekiel, Ezekiel, Ecclesiastes 12 connects immediately to Ecclesiastes 3. I cannot emphasize that enough. And all is vanity is one of the ways you get there. But the whole entire subject of 12 and the subject of 3 are, are feathered together. And, and I don't have time to read Ecclesiastes 3 today, I don't think. It doesn't look like it. But I should first address Ecclesiastes 3.21 because Ecclesiastes 3.21 might be the most butchered verse in all of Scripture within the church. And that's very unfortunate. So I'm going to just quickly address Ecclesiastes 3.21. Ecclesiastes 3.21 does not say, it does not state that animals are extinguished. If that is your view, it is impossible. It is impossible to for that view to prevail against the weight of the Bible. Many contend that it does say that. In fact, it says the opposite of that. And, and along with that. Really fast, I can give out these since the vast internet audience and Aubrey and Caleb and Cody are watching. Ecclesiastes 3.21. 
All I got to do is throw Genesis 1:20, Genesis 1:21, Genesis 1:24, Genesis 1:30, Genesis 2:7. destroys the position that it, that Ecclesiastes 3.21 says that animals are extinguished. Animals are living spirits identified as so. 120, 121, 124, 130, what 2.7 is as a, uh, I add 2.7 because the words are identical in each one of those verses. Now your Bible won't do that. Very few Bibles have those words identical in those five verses because there is an agenda. And you need to be aware of that. Your translation is not perfect. It's a translation. The perfect is the original form. It is what Moses' hand wrote. Animals are living spirits, living beings, living souls. Exact same words that are used of Adam at Genesis 2-7. Nefesh kaya, they're the same exact words. They mean the same thing. The key to solving the true meaning of Ecclesiastes 3.21 is to note that it is a rhetorical question. Maybe I'll read that part really fast. Ah. Who knows the spirit of the sons of Adam which go upwards and the spirit of the animals which goes down to the earth? It's a rhetorical question. Not knowing that will will send you uh, into disarray. Who can know is the rhetorical form. And that means no one can know is the expected conclusion. That is what he is saying there. He's not making a definitive statement. He's making a rhetorical. And the rhetorical assumes the negative. No one can know. Why can't anyone know? And failure to recognize the rhetorical form has led many to careen into the ditch at Ecclesiastes 3. And it's serious. It's, far, it's a far-reaching failure. It affects your opinion of God. And that's disastrous. Also, not being willing or able to see the clear, obvious, all is vanity, all is vanity references between Ecclesiastes 12 Ecclesiastes 12 and Ecclesiastes 3 uh, is, is a sadness for me to, to find that, that so few people make this connectivity. They're, in, they're in interconnected. You can't separate them. And not noticing the linkage, linkly, linkage has, has sent piles and piles of commentators after commentators into the depths of the ditch. And that's a metaphor that's most applicable to those of us who drive up here in Alaska during the snow in the dark. One of my great experiences is the first of January. It was New Year's Eve. Or New Year's Day, sorry. I knew that. My medicine is not nearly as powerful as it used to be. In fact, it absolutely is valueless as medicine now. Dang it. Somebody sent me something. Was it sent to me or did you just show it to me? That you go to see the doctor and the first thing he says is everything that you enjoy doing and eating and drinking, you can never do again or eat or drink. And that is pretty much what they say to me. My great goal is to get off this uh, this anticoagulation medicine. It's very difficult. Bill has rescued me. 
I can't say how he'd done it, because that would go out on the internet and I would get caught. No. Okay. In Alaska, New Year's Eve, I was supposed to go to work for the railroad. I was way up on the hillside in those days. I had a house way up there because the railroad paid me far more money than I was worth. Uh, because I was the only one that knew logic structures and uh, microprocessor theory and semiconductor theory. And new locomotives had come in, the GP40-2s, and they were filled with all that kind of stuff. And for me, it was simple. And so I got to be... Highly paid because of that. At a young age when I had no idea what to do, and so I built a house on the hillside being an idiot. Now it's time to go down Rabbit Creek Road. And Rabbit Creek Road in those days bore no resemblance to what you see today. It was literally one great big giant sledding hill. And it had rained on December the 30th, and it had frozen on the 31st. And so I went to walk out of my subdivision. I couldn't even walk, and I'm a young man. I'm in my 20s. So I can't even walk to the street. I have to walk out of my subdivision. I'm crawling in my subdivision. It's so slick. And I'm with uh, Dr. Mike Hayes at the time. We make it all the way out to Rabbit Creek Road, and all we see is piles of cars just sliding down the hill backwards completely. That hill is over a mile long. It dumps into the, uh, what's the name of that, Potter Marsh. And these cars were just going sideways and backwards, and they, they would just not stop. Come down the hill from upper hillside, I was considered lower or middle hillside. They're coming down at 45, 50 miles an hour, and they're on absolute hockey Zamboni ice. And they hit that and they start sliding and cartwheeling. And we're standing. There's nothing we can do but watch 50 of them hit each other going down that hill that day. Did you, do you remember that day? Were you there then, Janie? Well, it was fortunately a holiday uh, for some of us, not for me, but became one. I crawled back and said no. And again, this is my metaphor for what these commentators do with respect to Ecclesiastes 3.21. They pile on top of each other, and it is incredibly destructive. Again, it, it reduces their opinion of God to something that is not biblically true. And that's a great failure, again, to repeat that. Anyway. I must address Ecclesiastes 3 alongside Ecclesiastes 12. To separate them is to invite error. And chapter 12, back to chapter 12, it begins with, Remember now your Creator. And that causes the most obvious of the obvious questions in the very first verse. When is now? When are you supposed to remember your Creator? And the Holy Spirit, through Solomon, answers the question, in the verses that follow, the now, the time to remember the Creator, your Creator, time to remember Him is before the difficult days, the evil days come. Okay, next question. When do the evil days come? What are they? It's not a coincidence because there are no coincidences in Scripture that the saved thief 
See, here's the New Testament complement of Ezekiel, or Ezekiel, Ecclesiastes 12. The saved thief, Luke 23, 42. The difficult day had come for him. It had come to the saved thief. And he reached for the hand of his creator who remembers all things and he asked him what? Remember me. Isn't that interesting that he would use that verse? The difficult days draw near and Solomon here presents beautifully. It's amazing this imagery of death. It's nonetheless one of sadness and darkness. And most scholars, and I'm going to rush through it, but we'll come back next week and hit it again and again and again. Most scholars interpret the house. See, it says, the day, uh, the day when the keepers of the house tremble. Most scholars say that's the hands and the arms. Uh, you can tell. I, none of my clothes fit anymore, right? I mean, I could put another one of my necks in here. I'm down to one shirt and one pair of pants, and that's the way it's going to be for a while. Bill is the same way. How many shirts you got that you can wear with a tie? Has to have a tie so you look stupid like this. Yeah. But they interpret the the keepers that that tremble as the arms and the legs, and the strong men is the leg. I'm sorry, the arms and the hands, and the strong men is the legs. And the few grinders as teeth. That's how they look at this imagery. And I have no Im- image, I'm, I'm sorry, I have no issue with all of that, with all of that imagery. I think they're probably, it bears up that analysis does uh, under scrutiny in my opinion. So I think it is an aspect of it. And, the, and if you continue with that, the windows they will suggest are the dimming of the eyes. The daughters of music is the loss of hearing. And again, all that is likely. And I think that is one of the intentions of Solomon and the Holy Spirit. But what should you expect? And not even close. If you stop there, there is more and more and more here. First thing you do is find where it goes to the New Testament. Find where it goes to the Old Testament. I told you that it reflects of the thief. It says, remember now your creator in the time you are about to die. And he says, remember me to the rememberer. One of the greatest stories in all of the New Testament. His understanding of who he was with. He recognized, if he did not know Ecclesiastes 12.1, I will be stunned. I can't wait to ask him. So... uh Again, most interpret the house as a decaying body. And I think all of that is likely, but expect much more depth and complexity. These are the difficult days that come. For man will go to his destiny, his eternal destination. And the time is now to remember your creator before the silver cord is broken, removed and loosened. So now your next question. We've got the now. What is the silver cord? That is loosened. What is Solomon talking about? 
And once more, there are many offered positions. The most common is that the silver cord is the spinal column. So if you buy a commentary, you're going to find that to be preeminent, by far the most common. And the spinal column is interesting to me. If that is the case, I'll make a contrary case here in a minute. But that's one of the four methods of communication between the heart and the brain. That's the neurological pathway, the central nervous system. And so I am sympathetic and parasympathetic to this view. One slight laugh. That, that encourages me to keep trying these kinds of jokes. I'm glad I, I wrote here, I wrote, uh, that's, a, that's a very little autonomic nervous system joke and no one will get it. And it didn't stop me that I thought no one would get it, but how thrilled am I that one person pretended to get it? And again, it doesn't matter if you really got it as long as you pretend to get it. Okay. It's my position. I submit that the silver cord is not the spinal column. What do I say it is? I say that it is the living soul. The immaterial component, which is wonderfully fastened by the creator to the material body in such a way that no one can solve how it is done. It's called the mind-brain problem, but it could be called the mind-heart problem. It's, it's that which is non-physical that is loosed from that which is merely physical. And he says, remember your creator before the silver core, the living soul, is unfastened from the body. The mind remembers, the mind controls the brain, the mind cries out as the thief did, the mind travels with the living soul and the spirit, and the body disintegrates into dust. So before the body disintegrates, remember your creator before your soul is removed, separated, loosed from that, the body. The body goes to dust. But what does it say? The spirit will return to God who gave it. This living spirit returns to God who gave it. Which brings us to the third most obvious question. So of Ecclesiastes 12. Why does the Spirit return to God? Because many don't think that's true. We call that biblical holism heresy. Many believe that the, the Spirit and the body both go to dust and that God only resurrects those whom he chooses and the rest are annihilated. That's, that is probably the most common position. I hope not, but I wouldn't be surprised anymore. Why does that, why is that obviously not true? Why does the spirit return to Christ when it is loosened from the body that go to dust, that goes to dust? There's a purpose for it. What's the purpose? For what purpose? And when you resolve that, here is where, when that's resolved, Ecclesiastes 12.7, when you've got that figured out, then you resolve Ecclesiastes 3.21 and stop having this view that all animals are annihilated. Because that's, the connectivity, again, of the two, 12.7 refers to 3.21. And if you don't know that, into Rabbit Creek Ditch you go, piling on top of each other one by one. By the thousands, tens of thousands, 
I get letters from people all the time, not all the time, not necessarily letters, but I get comments on some of the lectures that say, you're the only pastor that does this, that puts Ecclesiastes 12.7 to Ecclesiastes 3.21. No other pastor does it. I hope that's not true. I don't think it is true. I'm positive it's not true. I know somebody else that does it. He's dead. Long dead. Two that are long dead. How about that? The contemporary church delights in saying that animals are extinguished. Why? Here's where the Catholic Church gets some praise. They don't believe it. They say the opposite. It's the Protestants that have this view. Why do they have it? What's the benefit? What does it say about God? Exodus 17, 1 through 7. To repeat, who knows if the living spirits of the sons and daughters of Adam go upward to heaven and if the living spirits of the animals go downward into the earth. I do not know. That is probably the most literally correct translation of 321 Ecclesiastes. It doesn't say men. It says Adam. It's talking about Adam. Oops, I went the wrong. Oh, here we go. Adam is the subject. Whenever you see man in the Bible, it's it's the Hebrew word for Adam. So you have to ask yourself: Is it capitalized or not? In this case, it's capitalized. Who knows if the living spirits of the sons and daughters of Adam go upwards to heaven, and if the living spirits of the animals go downward into the earth? I do not know. Some translations of Ecclesiastes 3.21 say, Who can know whether the spirit of the sons of Adam, I'm sorry, who can know whether the spirits of the sons and daughters of Adam go up to heaven? Who can prove it? No one knows. In other words, it's not yet revealed. Solomon was making a different point than the extinguishment of animals. He was revealing the fate of a man, not the fate of animals. I'm going to repeat it in a slightly adjusted wording. Let me, uh, let me ask it this way. Why do men go up to stand before the Ancient of Days? Why do the spirits of men go up to be before the Ancient of Days and animals do not? That's what Solomon is saying. Let me say it a little bit more obviously. Why do the spirit, living souls of men go up and stand before the Ancient of Days and the living souls of animals are not held accountable? Oh, looky, I answered the question first time in my so-called career. You should be stunned. Everyone's smiling. Let the record show that everybody here is, is going, wow, he answered a question. I'll never do it again. I regret it already. The police are coming for me because of it. I can hear them. Either that or it's the ambulance and I don't want to check my... They're getting really close. I have one of these things. They're fantastic. If you have this condition, atrial fibrillation, uh, you have to have the portable little ECG machine. It lets me know whether or not I have ectopic beats, whether or not I'm in atrial fibrillation, whether or not I have 
uh, premature ventricular complexes. Uh, tells me everything I need to know so that I don't panic. Because one thing about this particular condition is the panic. Um, Michael, did I say it right? Michael Spitz. Well, no, Mark Spitz. I confused him, conflated him with Michael Phelps. Mark Spitz found out, he's 69, that he has atrial fibrillation. Um, and it is a very discouraging uh, event. So, vigilance, knowing how I'm feeling and what, I'm, what my heart is doing at all times has become something that I must consider constantly. Okay, Solomon, Ecclesiastes 3, 18 through 21. He establishes the commonality between animals and men when they die. You can't tell the difference between when a man dies and when an animal dies in the sense that they both look exactly the same. The process is the same. You can't see a spirit go. You can't see what the spirit does. They die the same. That's what he says. And both... So there's this commonality in death between animals and men. And both have living spirits. Both have the breath of God. Both die physically. Man has no advantage, Ecclesiastes 3.19. What happens to the sons and daughters of Adam also happens to animals, Ecclesiastes 3.19. Their bodies both return to dust. Where's the differentiation? Job 34.14. Just a... Make it more difficult to have a crazy position. Not crazy. Disrespectful. Find the most God-honoring position when you're describing what God does, and that's the one that will be right. Not the insulting one. Job 34, 14-15. He which is God, should gather to himself his spirits and his breath. Psalm 104, 29, 30. I don't have room. Okay, I do have room. It's important. (coughs) He, God, takes away their breath. The breath he gave to the living things, both small and great, Psalms 104.25. In wisdom, God, he made them all, Psalms 104.29. Obviously, all of the living souls, his breath of life returned to him who made them. And he made them all in great wisdom that we can't even begin to comprehend or duplicate. We'll never be able to make life. We can't make a rock. He will renew the face of the earth, Psalm 104.30. How do you think he does that? When you combine all of those passages with Solomon's denial of an observable difference in the disposition of the life breath between man and animals. In other words, no one can discern any distinction between the death of the animal and the death of the son and the daughters of Adam. Adam. It's about Adam. Why is it about Adam? Why did Solomon bring up Adam? That's the fourth most obvious question of these passages. It's because man, I'm going to do it again, I'm going to answer another question. Man stands before the judge of all. 
Jesus Christ. He who can send both the body and the living soul into everlasting destruction is the one who we stand before. He says, don't fear those who send the body to dust. There's your compliment again in the New Testament. Fear me, he says. I am the one that can take body and soul and put them into the place of destruction. 2 Thessalonians 1.9, Matthew 10.28. Destruction, when he says it, is not extinguishment because he knows something, doesn't he? He knows living soul, living soul, living soul, living soul, living soul, breath of life, breath of life, breath of life, breath of life, breath of life. You can't extinguish him. That's him. And he knows that. He will send body and the living soul into everlasting destruction. Do you notice how he said that? Why does he send resurrect the body and put the living soul back in it and send them both into destruction? Because they refuse to believe him. They reject him. He doesn't send the body alone into destruction. He reestablishes it. Destruction is not extinguishment. That's blasphemy. That's the evil of Exodus 17, 1-7, Matthew 4, 7. The place of destruction is a place of separation from the Creator who gives His breath. It's not annihilation. And animals, it's destruction. And animals do not face destruction. Thank you. They do not face judgment. Ecclesiastes 3:18 through 21 is Solomon's description of the accountability of mankind in contrast to the animals. Both are living spirits. All go through. All go to one place. The bodies are left behind in the dust at physical death. Man stands before the Ancient of Days. Do not confuse the Creator who gives His breath. I'm sorry. Do not accuse the Creator who gives His breath of life of annihilation. Again, that's Exodus 17, 1 through 7. It's not in him. He doesn't think that way. Who thinks like that? Man thinks like that. God does not. Please do not make him like us. He's not like us. His thoughts are not our thoughts. Now, more on Ecclesiastes 3. I didn't even scratch the surface to come in the weeks ahead. And hopefully that's enough to get you and get everyone started in the proper God-honoring, Christ-honoring direction. That was my goal today. And if I got to assign a key to Ecclesiastes 3, you will only understand it if you place it alongside of Ecclesiastes 12. You do that, you're going to ensure a proper understanding, a proper analysis, and you will be including all of these scriptures that I have on the board here. The breath of life returns to him who breathed it. It's only the body that returns to dust. That's a fundamental principle of Scripture, to diminish or disrespect it, to mock it, as so many do. This principle is insulting to mock it. If you mock it, you're insulting the character of him who gives his spirit, gives his breath, who gives the soul. Okay, if the silver cord is the living spirit, as I propose, what then is the golden bowl? The Picture shattered, the wheel broken. The silver cord is loosed, it's removed. The golden bowl is broken, the pitcher is shattered, the wheel is broken. And when this happen, happens, then the dust will return to the earth as it was. 
So the body will return. The dust will return to the earth as it was. Genesis 2.7, Genesis 3.19. And the spirit that was removed or loosened will return to God who gave it in every single living being that he gave it to. How many has that been? How many cells in your body? 27 trillion. How many stars in the atmosphere or in the universe? Uncountable trillions. Might be 500 billion galaxies that have hundreds of thousands of billions of stars. It is so much material. How many living beings has he made that those souls have returned to him? Notice Solomon's word here that he uses over and over. He uses it three times. Remember your creator before the silver cord is loosed, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher shattered at its fountain, or the wheel is broken, or the golden bowl, or the pitcher, or the wheel. I was a pitcher. I'm now a broken pitcher, so I very much identify. We are instructed to remember our Creator before these things happen, before they happen. Are they separate events or are they one event with four different representations, four ways of explaining the same process, if you will, wish to think of it that way. In other words, is it or or and? How's that for funny? I worked hard on that. I'll write it. Is it or or and? Or, or, and. Or, 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 or. Yeah, I was thinking a, a beach ball, but a fish will work. I'm supposed to eat fish. And only fish. Everything I eat is terrible. <laughs> pumpkin seeds. How many pumpkin seeds do I eat now? Lots. Fortunately, I have no taste. Is it or, or, and? That's your discussion. You will find that and prevails in commentary overwhelmingly. In fact, they say the golden bowl is the brain, the pitcher is the heart, the left ventricle, actually, they identify it. And they say the wheel is the right ventricle. Which one goes to the lungs? How do you tell which is right or left? You'll have to come and draw the diagram. You identify the heart by looking at the heart, not your own heart. So what side, what, this is which part? See? Solomon wrote, or. And so I don't think it's and. I don't think it's the brain or the heart or the left or right ventricle or the spinal column. I think that's missing what he's trying to say here. He said, or. Remember your your creator before the silver cord or the golden bowl or the pitcher or the wheel. And physical death so that you understand, is the reversal of something. What is the reversal of? Physical death reverses something that has already been done. What is it? Physical death is the reversal of creation. Genesis 3.19, if you will, is the reciprocal of Genesis 2.7. You're made out of the dust to the dust you go. It's the reversal. What we are awaiting is the reversing of the reversal. Or what Christ calls the what? The resurrection. He's going to reverse the reversal by resurrection. Ultimately, the resurrection is the repeating 
of Genesis 120, 121, 124, 130, and Genesis 2-7. He repeats these verses when he resurrects. It's not a recreation. It's the reversing of the creation. How much reversing happens? What's the scope of it? I all the time I hear these goofy, I don't know how to describe them. They're goofy. They say they have the power to resurrect. Okay, how much can you do it? How many breaths do you have to have back to you? How much dust do you have to find? And how much reversing do you have to do? How long is it going to take you? It's insanity what the church says. Why do they say it? Because it gets them money. I'm actually proud today of Benny Hinn, of all people, who stood up and said, I lied to you for my whole life. I made a fortune off of you idiots. That's not his exact words. But it's darn close. If they aren't his words, they ought to be. They're the words of his nephew. He's a scam artist, been a scam artist his whole life. Bless his heart, he's not his whole life. Before the silver cord's loose, he's going to say, remember me, a sinner. Have mercy on me, a sinner. It's going to be just like the tax collector, not like the person who stands there and says, I never sinned in all my whole life. I'm getting angry about this, aren't I? Sorry. Calm down, my wife's saying. Anyway... Only Christ can resurrect the dead. He's going to repeat 120, 121, 124, 130 of Genesis and Genesis 2-7. It's on a massive scale that we... It's, it's, on the, it's shocking how many. Stunning. But it is who Jesus Christ is. He is the one to whom the Spirit returns to. And He will return that which returned to Him. That's the plan. He is the resurrection and the life and the only resurrection and the only life. There is none but him. Next week, we will delve into the incredible, amazing proofs that are the heart and the brain. Much to my delight.